Okay, so the subject this uh, afternoon for myself is Mormonism, and I'm just going to say there's a graphical truth in what you've seen so far. You've gone from a really great teacher, uh, somebody who's an experienced debater, to somebody who's not much of an apologist, okay? I, I love to teach, but I've not done a lot of apologetics. But, Greg, you correct me, you feel Right, I'm you know, and I, and I mentioned this to you guys yesterday, there are various sects of Mormonism, and uh, I belong to a, a, a smaller sect of Mormonism, the, when I was growing up, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Fortunately, lately they've changed their name to the Community of Christ, and I will briefly mention them uh, here and there, uh, but I do want to make this as an observation. This is... This material is going to be exclusively, with just those exception of those few mentions, uh, regarding the Salt Lake Group, the LDS Mormons, and of course they're by far the larger of the of the organizations. The Community of Christ that I came out of uh, about three years before I became a Christian was is, is uh, about 250 members. It was about 200,000, 250,000, I should say. It was about 200,000 when I was there. So you see, there's not a really steep growth rate uh, among those. I also want to make this little comment, and that is that. Um, I was kind of thinking about how you compare them, you know, and how close are they. And while there are some overlaps, they do believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. They do believe that he uh, brought the Book of Mormon by the hand of God as revealed by the, the angel Moroni. Uh, they believe that he was a seer and a revelator. And that, so they not only believe the Book of Mormon, but they believe a large part of the same doctrine and covenant. Uh, that part which was revealed early on. The, the similarities pretty well stopped there. <clears throat> and as we'll see in the history, and this is one of the places where there's actually some overlap between uh, their history, Mormon history, and uh, some of the early restorationists uh, like Alexander Campbell. I'll point that out when we get there. It's a pretty significant overlap. In fact, I read one comment that said that Mormonism in its infancy uh, is best described as a Campbellite sect. And the truth of the matter is it really was for a very short period of time just about, about that. The comparison, to finish that little subject, is it ends with those things and the, the more egregious doctrines that the Mormon church teaches, the LDF, Latter-day Saints teach, those things are very much anathema to, to RLDS, or Community of Christ people. Um, and they're about as close to one another as we are to the, to the Catholic Church. That was the best, I mean, that's not close at all. Uh, well, we know that Mormonism has certainly been on in the news lately, uh, especially the last week. It's been kind of interesting to be so deeply studying about Mormonism and see it in, in the forefront of the public uh, debate. It's been in people's minds what uh, Mormons believe. And it was, I have to say, kind of refreshing to see a lot of people who knew some things about them, knew that, hey, this, this isn't, you know, just another Protestant denomination, uh, although that's exactly how they want to be seen. That is not always the case, but the last 10 years or so have seen uh, a move toward them wanting to be viewed as just another Protestant denomination. And so that's affecting their doctrine pretty significantly. So just by way of introduction, and be, I'm kind of worried with my introductions here and, and some of the things I put in the slides, they were just me thinking as I went through, so they're not really tightly bulletized here early on. But at any rate, we, because of their evangelistic efforts, uh, we're going to run into them. Um, and, and certainly, you guys mentioned you have, I'm sure you have Pat and, and, and Matt you guys will eventually run into them. And uh, they are very evangelistic. They're out there knocking on the doors. The guys that you see, these young elders as they're called, they've been through rigorous training to homogenize the message. They are very devout Mormons. They are the cream of the crop, so to speak, for the Mormons. They've been through uh, that boot camp that I mentioned where they go through and and really, they could get some good training in how to present things, uh, what to present, how to answer, answer uh, the things that we're going to look at. 
and what to do when you don't feel comfortable. So, and I've had that happen a few times. You probably have too, and and uh, seen what they do. Um, they have to do what they're doing on their own nickel. The whole two years, they get no funding from the church. They have to support themselves <clears throat> completely, the family. So you're seeing some people that are pretty serious. Not everybody does that. Uh, mission work. You're going to see some of the things that motivate them. Uh, among those things is the desire to become God. Uh, just like the God that they serve, Elohim, that we'll look at here this uh, afternoon. All right. So we've seen them. We know a little bit about them. <clears throat> and we're going to run into them again. And so well, the question is, you know, what do we do? Should we, you know, these are some pretty bullheaded folks here. Should we participate in a study with them? Uh, and I would argue that now more than ever the answer is yes. I, about six years ago I was pretty despondent studying with them uh, because it felt like beating your head against a brick wall. Um, but for reasons that um, that I can't completely explain, there has been a sudden shift where there's a, a lot of questioning going on within the Mormon church. First, a couple of notes about the size. Um, these are all LDS published uh, numbers here. So they currently uh, claim right at 13 million worldwide. Um, they claim a growth of between 800 and 1,000 per day worldwide. So that's coming up to around 300 to 350, 360,000 a year. Which, by the way, I want to point out, even this published number is not as fast as the, the Adventists. The Adventists are the fastest growing of these, these uh, offshoots of Christianity, or whatever you want to call them, these cults. They, they are the fastest growing. The Jehovah's Witnesses, although smaller, are rivaling the Mormons in growth. This number looks pretty impressive, but for a church their size, an organization their size, it's certainly not... Uh, and, and as I'll point out here in a moment, it's not without some questions. <clears throat> um, if, and it has been, uh, you know, extrapolated some w- within the Mormon church, if they continue the growth rate that they had back in the late 90s, they would get to around 250 million adherents uh, by the year, I want to say 20, um, 2075, somewhere in that neighborhood. <clears throat> Uh, these numbers are a little bit dated. In fact, where I took them from was an article. I don't know if you guys got to see this, but the Time Inc. article on Mormon, or Time article on Mormon Inc. is pretty revealing about how they're set up as a corporate structure. Uh, pretty well documented. They're not really all that shy about it. So these numbers may be just a little bit dated, but 30 billion uh, in total assets, about 6 billion a year uh, income. The number's probably a good bit better than that now. Uh, either way, they would be squarely in the in the Fortune 500 if they were a company. Uh, the second fast, and, and, and there's a lot of corporate linkage. Uh, J.C. Penney, Coca-Cola, and things like that have some substantial connections financially. <clears throat> At any time, if you have questions, or if I just bring a point you want some elaboration, I'll try to do that. And, and I want it to be in that kind of a class too, because that's how I'm more comfortable. All right. Um, I mentioned before I go any further here, uh, well, that the uh, the Mormon Church is really when I first started the study, I was the material that I just presented to you had the image in my mind of a very fast-growing organization. But the truth is, the more that I've dug back, they're they're really not growing very fast. They did peak out in the late nineties, and there's some speculation that because of the proliferation of the internet and information that there's more discontent and questioning uh, within the Mormon church. And that is a really huge thing. I've read some of the, the statements that these, these ex-Mormons have been making, and they express doubt for a long time. They also express that one of the things they were able to do would be to go to the Internet and, and do a, you know, just do a Google search on horses and Book of Mormon. And, you know, and, and the Book of Mormon, they're in there. Well, what, they would, what they would see... Uh, I'll try to make sense of that here, but what they would see is that, hey, wait a minute, you know, there are all these people exposing all these problems with Mormonism, and there they are, instead of having to go out and buy Mormonism unveiled, which they wouldn't do, it wouldn't be there, well, it's just a click away, and so now they're looking at it, it's causing some of that doubt, and they're having 
some serious deceptions, especially domestically, in terms of those who have been have been part of Mormonism. Because Mormonism, let's be clear, it 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 probably got more problems, <clears throat> you know, than any other of these these types of organizations. It's got some serious problems, and you'll see that just in, in trying to map hate to happen defend it. It's pitiful. But uh, so they're they're having a lot of that and that provides us with an opportunity. Now one of the big problems is, is when you're teaching these Mormons, you're gonna you know, most Mormons that do leave do end up I say most, I've I've, I've heard that, read that, I couldn't statistically prove it, but many we shall will say that uh, they leave it only to become agnostics. They they don't leave it to become Christians or even to join denominations as a rule. Uh, although many may, uh, certainly a lot of them don't. So uh, they're well received. People, you know, I mean, they not recently, but they've been on TV in times past. Had some very nice marketing campaigns, and and uh, they are, as a rule, uh, hardworking, honest, good people. Uh, I've worked with some Salt Lake Mormons, and they're not all that way. Uh, they certainly I've heard them use bad language. Uh, those that and, and I'm not talking about a, a somebody over here that's not convicted. I'm talking about somebody who's wearing their temple garments. You know, they they are inconsistent, just like people in, in denominations, and, and these people just are. So they're not without kinks in the armor. They they do have the same struggles anybody would. <clears throat> Here's a point that I want to emphasize: uh, the other denominations change their doctrine. Mormonism is particularly fluid, and the reason is their view of how doctrines occur, and and their view toward their prophets. You know enough about the Mormon Church probably to know that they have a president who is also a prophet, and he can and does get revelations on a regular basis. And for that reason, <clears throat> if something doesn't fit, they'll change it. And you have to take the, the latest Mormon prophet over an earlier prophet, at least according to many Mormons, that uh, if there's an inconsistency, well, then things have just changed. So they're really comfortable with change. That said, there is a doctrinal framework that is fundamental to Mormons, and that is what we're going to look at. And when I say it's fundamental, uh, it is their salvation. It, it is what they believe in as salvation. And, and that is to progress, to progress to become a God. And if, if that, uh, I know that sounds, they are in one sense universalist. I'll just let this out right here. In one sense universalist, uh, I had my brother uh, look at me in the eyes, the tears in his eyes after we had been studying, and he said, uh, you'll have all the heaven you believe you will. Well, what he was saying was that I would be relegated to one of the lower kingdoms of heaven. That's real good. But... You know, anything above that to get into the celestial kingdom, only faithful Mormons can go there. And that, by the way, is a common belief between LDS and RLDS Mormon or Community of Christ Mormons. Um, so there are, there is that that core belief that they're not going to they're not going to give up. They do believe in the plurality of God. They do believe that they can become God. They believe in the levels of heaven. They believe in uh, Outer darkness being a place reserved for only Satan, his angels, and me. Because I am what you call son of perdition. You guys are okay because you were never Mormon. But I had my mom look me in the eye and tell me, but that means you're a son of perdition when I told her that I was leaving the Mormon church or that thing. Uh, so at any rate, <clears throat> things like that, they're, they're not going anywhere. So we're going to try to stick with those and not get into some of the, the stranger beliefs. We're not going to deal a lot with, we're not even really going to touch much on polygamy. It's not something they hold to. The FLDS does, but they're so marginalized at this point that it's not worth going through. <clears throat> it is a part of Mormon history. They'll tell you that. All right, so we're going to find, fundamentally point us to that. And, of course, we want to, to look at, yes, sir. Can you talk about the main beliefs of the gods or the different gods? This is much, much more than the, it is, in my opinion, rooted in Greek philosophy uh, that held those things. 
their view of the creation, uh, their view of God in general fits pretty well with Greek philosophy, but their, their view of the, what they're going to become uh, is really autonomous God on a planet with, within a realm, just like they view our God Elohim. Uh, and I'm careful there because Jehovah is Jesus to the Mormons. We'll, we'll look at all this in detail, and it'll become pretty clear to you, I think. But it is much more than those. They're not just uh, expressions of the physical realm that you see. They are over that physical realm, but not to the extent that you and I understand that God is, as revealed in the Bible. Uh, God is co-eternal with matter, which the Greeks taught. The Greeks taught that. And it is ironic that the view of the Trinity, and I'm kind of scattered shooting right now, but I'll put this, but it's kind of ironic that, as you mentioned, the, the Greeks or the, the Romans and whatnot, they accuse us of developing the idea of the Trinity from the Nicene Creed only as based on Greek philosophy. When the truth of the matter is their idea of, of, of God in, in creation, in particular creation, is very Greek. But thanks for the question. That's good. And we'll get into that. All right, let's look at the, uh, the lesson topic. We're going to go over a pretty brief bit of history, just to give you an idea of where it came from. I think this is very important. It's important for Adventism. Uh, some of the points I make are applicable to Adventism as well, the, the history out of which Mormonism grew. Uh, we will look closely at the God of Mormonism, reasonably closely. Uh, the apostasy is a very important point for Mormons because nothing less, I'm kind of quoting here one of their leaders, nothing less than the complete and absolute apostasy of the church would warrant the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So when we say the apostasy, we know that an apostasy occurred, that, that there were Christians who went away, as predicted Paul, uh, predicted in Acts chapter 20 and other places. We'll look at those. But <clears throat> their view of the apostasy is absolute, complete eradication of the church from the face of the earth, and it happened fast. And it resulted in the Bible being very, very, very corrupted. Because if you look at basically what they did is it's, it's restorationism on steroids. Fast. It happened quickly, fast. Way back up or near 800 to the Joseph Way back up. Yeah. Sorry for the Canadian brethren. Yonder is a Celtic expression. But, <laughs> uh, but yes, it happened way back. I mean, uh, depending, and I'm going to be very liberal when we look at the, uh, when we look at the, the, their view of the apostasy, the quote that I have as one of the leaders pointing out as, uh, late as the, uh, the third century, but the truth is most of them hold that it was pretty well done by the end of the second century. It was pretty well the church as was given in the first test. There were no Christians. It was gone from the face of the earth. <clears throat> so that's a, a critical thing that we need to understand. Who is Jesus to the Mormons? Uh, he alluded to the fact that it isn't the same way we look at uh, certainly not the same way we look at Jesus. And as you know salvation if salvation is the coming of God, then where does Jesus fit into that? Pretty, pretty wild idea. And I also kind of hinted that they are universalists in the sense that even we will, if we are good moral people, we'll go to heaven. It'll just be a lower. So when they, when they read, when you read salvation, as this is very common with, with cults, they'll take a word that means one thing to most people, and they'll redefine that word to mean something completely different. Salvation to them, as Jesus came and died to give, to them means the ability to be resurrected, which is universal. Everyone will be resurrected. And we'll go to uh, one of the four uh, layers of in the afterlife. We'll talk about that. Salvation. And then finally we'll take a quick look at uh, Mormonism in the Bible. They do go to some passages that will that they hint or intimate that uh, these are things that point to the fact that the Bible was corrupted, that these got missed, and they're, they're pointing to uh, the Book of Mormon and Mormonism, Mormon doctrine. Okay. Any questions at this point? 
Here's a brief history of Mormonism. It began on December the 23rd, 1805, up near here, Neck and Woods, up in uh, Vermont. Okay, well, it's not that far. <laughs> it's somewhere out north over there. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, this, this young man, Joseph Smith, was born to a fairly uh, poor family there in Sheridan, Vermont. And, uh, you know, regardless of all the, the things that are said negatively about him as a person, they, many of them wanted, he was at least a very intelligent person, I'm convinced. He was not someone who was born to an affluent family who was highly educated, but he was very creative and he was very assertive. He was, uh, I've seen some of the, the they're not really photographs, but they're girl types, I think it's almost something like that. He was a very handsome person. You could see, kind of see, he would be a very charismatic person. He carried himself very confidently, very, very persuasive. Uh, by no means an unintelligent man, and uh, he linked up with a couple of people that were pretty sharp. The Pratt, in particular, and, and, a, and a Sidney Rigdon, who was also very intelligent. And these people were had one big fault. They were unscrupulous. That was the one thing that I would say. Um, you know, he could have been a force for good, I think, but he was very uh, not a principled person at all. <clears throat> and I say that not just by, to throw it out and be prejudicial, but uh, it's just the facts are borne out. There's court documents, there's things he was convicted of. You probably have read some of that. All right, so around 1820, and this note, the state moved around a bit <clears throat> and later, and, and I also want to point out this, these next three dates that are here are dates that were given later. The accounts were not given at the time. Uh, in other words, at age 14, uh, he claimed later that at age 14 he went out into a grove uh, to pray. Before we talk about that experience that he claimed, let's talk a little bit about that that period of time called the Second Great Awakening. I don't know if you've heard of that expression. Uh, between 1800 and 1830, the Adventist movement kind of sprang out of that, um, and certainly Mormonism did. That part of the country they were in uh, was very high-charged, supercharged at that period of time, with a lot of people calling for, well, let's go back to the Bible, let's go back to the basics, uh, Barton Stone, Alvin Campbell, men like that, were teaching. You know, they weren't teaching the absolute purity of the gospel, but they were, they were definitely making a call and moving in the right direction in a big way. And a lot of that appealed to a lot of people, of course, as it, as it should, and, and should today. Uh, so that area in upstate New York, Vermont, Hampshire, while now very secular, again, was a hot day. It would have been like this, you know, the South is perceived in, in so many ways now. Very much a hotbed for revivals. Uh, many, many, many people become very spiritually minded. Also during that period of time, uh, and, and I, I mentioned this so that you get a pretty good feel for what was the catalyst for Mormonism. Well, that's a huge one right there, just the general spirituality that Joseph Smith was subjected to. He saw happening. He saw arguments being made that, hey, we need to go back to the scriptures. We need to restore the truth. So, I mean, in his young and impressionable mind, he, he absorbed some of that, and he took it to another another level altogether. But another thing that was going on, people, you know, they were in the country, the country was starting to fill up, they were finding lots of Indian artifacts. Uh, starting in the late 17th, um, late 18th century, there were starting to be books written, articles written about, uh, speculating on the source of the American Indian. And a lot of people began to speculate that perhaps these were the lost tribes of Israel. The lost ten tribes in particular were, were put forth, the ones who went into the Assyrian captivity around 800 B.C. So people began to speculate that. They didn't know then what is very clearly known now. And this is a really big problem for Mormonism. And I'll just say it, that was one of the, the key things that they were answering is, we know where the American Indians came from. We've got a book of shelter and answered a lot of questions. So you had all that going on, and then it was also a period. Go ahead, sir. Right. 
to get there. So he had those things in there and also the German summons, and uh, those were used purportedly to translate. Actually, two things were used that were probably yes, the great city of Atlantic or uh, actually, the Jeremiah came through the Atlantic and the, the Nephites came. There were two migrations. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about, in fact, there are a total of three migrations, but really only two of them are covered in the Book of Mormon. The Muleites left about five and six about the destruction of Jerusalem, but the, the main one is, was around 605. Uh, that's when the Nephites left Jerusalem, they were warned of an angel. And then they ended up going, uh, they ended up going Atlantic. So I may be off on that. I'll double check that, but I'm pretty sure I've got them correct that way. At any rate, he, uh, begins at this point in time looking for someone to assist with the work. And as I mentioned, he was a, he was a, an intelligent person. He was very persuasive. There was a, uh, gentleman by the name of Martin, uh, Oliver Calvary and, uh, Martin. And his first name. He, uh, I wish I could. He, uh, he, he convinced him to, uh, Martin Harris. He helped convince him to, uh, to support the translation, uh, of the material. Now, interesting that the seven, I'm sorry, the, uh, three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, Oliver, Calvary, uh, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris were later excommunicated. But they, they all attested later that they didn't physically see those places. And I even, I have an old copy that I'll show you at the break or something that, uh, of the Book of Commandments where they, where he pretty much received a revelation of God telling him to quit asking to physically see them. So at any rate, at this time he began to, uh, try to translate them. And he got about 116 pages of the translation done and, uh, missed Paris was not as keen on this whole endeavor. Uh, and so she asked to see them, which she, they think she burned them. <laughs> so that's going to be my problem, because he was really making this up as he went home. And what happened was he, instead, he knew he was going to pick a predicament, because he didn't know they had been destroyed. So he began to begin to translate them, and, he, and he's kind of making it up as he goes. The man had a, a very active imagination. He had a little bit of material to work with. Then, if it didn't match, it could be used to discredit it. So he received a revelation. Revelations to this man came very timely, very timely and very specific when he needed things. And the revelation was, don't we translate those, we're going to leave that out for now, we'll start here and we'll move forward. So that took that out of the way. But those never, ever resurfaced, so he was just being a little bit paranoid about that. God, you see, couldn't know that. God couldn't have re- reduplicate. Well, his argument, well, it was a pretty clever argument, was that if he produced them faithfully, all they had to do was offer what they had. So he had, you know, he's like, okay, well, I'm just not going to do that. Martin Harris had to get out a $3,000 note on his form. You can see why Miss Harris didn't like it. They were pretty wealthy, but uh, uh, to, to get the Book of Mormon published. So about 1829, uh, they, got, uh, they got everything, they got it finished. Same year, uh, Joseph Smith and Oliver Calvary, uh, there in the Susquehanna, on the Susquehanna River, were, were baptized. Uh, they became Christians for the first time since right after the apostles had died. They were Christians on the earth again. And, uh, they received the Melchizedek priesthood. Not a day on this, but it was pretty shortly thereafter. And we'll talk about what those things mean a little bit later on. <coughs> In 1830, April 6th, the, the, they were finished and went to the printer. Uh, a fellow by the name of Gilbert didn't want to print it, but uh, the money was there, so he went ahead and did it. They made 5,000 copies, and uh, at that time, Joseph Smith made a pretty clever move, actually. He declared himself a prophet, seer, apostle, and revelator. I put it on here, and the revelator of the church. So basically they gave him carte blanche to direct the affairs of the church as if he were God, which he did very aggressively throughout his life at that point forward, from that point forward. This is a misspelling I thought of. This should be curtain in the teeth. Probably nothing out of there. At any rate, they, uh, 
They moved to Kirtland, Ohio. There was a lot of uh, friction, as you would guess, when they started trying to distribute this as the new Bible, a new Bible that explained the origin of the American Indian. So they, uh, they left that area of upstate New York, Vermont. There were a few uh, that he had intermingled with around Pennsylvania. And uh, they moved out to Kirtland, Ohio. Well, there was a man there by the name of Sidney Rigdon. And Sidney Rigdon was the, the very... Uh, learning, really, a very good uh, learner, disciple, uh, at the feet of Alexander Campbell. So he knew a lot about the, that part of the Restoration Movement. And whenever he took, now he had one falling out. The reason he fell out, evidently, with Joseph, or with uh, Alexander Campbell, is he wanted to establish a communal existence. He wanted to establish a place where they could group. They really, I think even probably, Campbell may have thought this, but they really felt like the kingdom was going to become, so that Christ was becoming consumed. That because of all the religious fervor, that was a pretty prevailing idea. Well, in preparation for that, some people wanted to establish these utopian areas, uh, if you want to call them that. And, and, and Rigdon was like that. Well, Campbell didn't want to go along with that. So he defected over to when Joseph Smith showed up in you know, Curtin, uh Sidney Richard had several hundred, probably close to a thousand people that were pretty much following him from several different congregations. And when he went to Joseph, most of those people did too. Yes, sir. Um, well, why Joseph Want to start more with the money thing, or did you just... Okay. I mentioned two, two of the three trends that were going on at that time. The third one I didn't mention that was pretty prevalent in rural areas was, uh, there was what some people would call, uh, treasure madness, money digging madness. There were a lot of people, uh, who were out scouting the countryside with people who lost treasure. And Justin Smith was employed doing that sort of thing. I didn't mention it here, but in uh, 1827, he was convicted uh, in Bainbridge, uh, New York, for uh, using peat stones, which he, by the way, ended up using those same stones after the first one of those two papers. He went back into the peat stone and put it in a hat. They went to look for treasure, didn't it? I mean, we can describe it that way in the history, that's part of the scripture. Uh, that he went back to that peach stone and did that. So the question is why was the motivation? I think, as I mentioned earlier, he was intelligent, he was very charismatic, handsome, uh, a bit of a megalomaniac. You know, I think he, he wanted to do it for the purpose of elevating himself. I mean, he has the whole idea of the exaltation to God with it. And that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty lofty stuff for, for a mortal man. He dreamed all this stuff up. Uh, money, I think, was a big part of it. Uh, he was sued and lost several times for owing bad debts that he didn't make up on. Uh, that's a matter of court records in Kirtland. As a matter of fact, they began to build, does that answer the question, money? I mean, I certainly can't, I, I don't know his motivation, but if you look at the evidence, it was part of it. Just the regular old common stuff that people struggle with. So there in Kirtland, Ohio, they began to build a, a temple. Uh, it's still there today. It's one of the few of the early temples that actually that actually survived. <clears throat> uh, it was finished, by the way, in 1836, but because they had borrowed so much money on it, they didn't have any. Uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon set up a bank, calling, and they were asked for authority to do this, but were denied, so they called it the, uh, the anti-bank of Kirtland, Ohio. They just put in very fact, you can look at the notes, and it says in really tiny letters, anti bank, bank and safety institution of Kirtland, something like that. Well, it lasted about 40 days. And they, and they, he, and he prophesied at that one time that it would become the largest bank on earth, by the way. It collapsed in about 40 days and left a lot of people in bad shape. At that time, he had to flee in to the rig and left at night to go to Missouri, but I am squarely ahead of myself. 1831, got those copies out, they're selling them, so uh, hence some, they were not just handing them out, they were selling them. <laughs> In fact, Martin Harris was brought into the enterprise 
uh, just on that idea that he would finance it, that he would recoup his money. All right. 33, uh, interestingly enough, the LDS Church do not use the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Uh, the RLDS group or the Community of Christ do use it because they got the manuscript for it. Uh, but it was a translation by the term extremely loosely. It was basically Joseph editing the Bible to say what he wanted it to say. He added a lot of information about Enoch, uh, about Moses and things like that. I've got a copy with me. In fact, well, they don't just have their own The Community of Christ does. This is a, I showed you this not too long ago. This is the set of the Community of Christ books. Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. This is the JST version, as it's referred to. The Mormons will refer to it. It's funny, they'll refer to it sometimes to bolster documents, but they don't use it. I think they're afraid to use it because they don't have control of that manuscript. I, I don't know what I can think. Uh, this is the entire uh, translation text from the, the smaller group, not the bigger and the reason they ended up, they ended up with the Curtin Temple, they ended up with that, they ended up with Independence, Missouri. They did not end up with the Temple Lot we're about to talk about. But the main reason was because Emma Smith, Joseph's wife, went with them and she propped up her son, Joseph Smith III, as the new prophet and, uh, of that organization. So when I grew up, that, that was the literature I read. I, even my historical fiction was, was Joseph's City Beautiful. Published by them, you know, that novel of Illinois. That material was, uh, I mean, that, that was our claim to fame. We got the secession. When I was, when I was a kid, it was a, a descendant of Joseph Smith on the throne there, so to speak. That has since gone away. They don't have a descendant uh, anymore. I think something happened there. Alright, so the Joseph Smith translation was completed. That is a, it is a fact that the Mormons Sometimes it's a day, uh, but they, it did happen. The Book of Commandments uh, was also published in 1835 as the Doctrine and Covenant. And the Doctrine and Covenant, it and the Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, and Pearl Great Christ form the biggest part of the Mormon Scripture. I'm hitting this kind of quickly, but we will look at that. A little, we'll spend some time looking at those a little bit more closely. But at any rate, what it really was, I mentioned the, the revelation about the, the bang, the revelation to go to Kirkland, Ohio, things like that. Those are all recorded in the Book of Commandments between 1830 and 1835. But there were some things that needed fixing. So they fixed them and put them in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, they should have kept right on fixing because they left a lot of bad stuff that remains till today. Like polygamy still in the Doctrine, uh, doctrine and Covenants. That same year, there was a traveling salesman that came through. He's not a traveling salesman. He was a traveling lecturer. And he had four Egyptian mummies and some papyri that were associated with them. And they bought them, I want to say they bought them for $2,500. And Joseph Smith began to translate them. And they became the book of Abraham. And those are the ones that, uh, uh, that became the part of the Pearl of Great Price that we'll look at a little bit more later. The, the problem with the Book of Abraham and these papyri is uh, they are still in existence. And, and that was before Egyptology was well understood. So they, 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 they translated them, so to speak. But then when, once hieroglyphics began to be understood, they look back. They don't say anything. They don't say anything like what is recorded in the book of Abraham. In fact, there is a one character to 25 word ratio. <laughs> well, that's just. I mean, you look at them. There's one Egyptian character for every 25 words in the book of Abraham. So those are some very, very potent characters. How do they solve that? It, it is a tremendous. The, the LDS church really tried to push that under the rug. They debated it for a while. Their scholars finally gave up the ghost on that. And they really just, they don't have an answer. The RLDS did the right thing, but it's such a tremendous admission. They said it would, it, it would be result, and if you ask me, this is a very telling thing. It was the result of the imagination of Joseph Smith. That was their official statement. 
Because see, they never accepted it. They were they were vindicated. See, their prophets said, "Don't do it." But uh, that but it says something about the imagination of Joseph Smith that they had just admitted to me. And also, again, I didn't emphasize that, but the Book of Mormon them saying what they said about the the that big claim to fame of the American Indians, and now that's just a little sideline. That uh, that also speaks to the problems that they're having. This is what we know already. It's not to me like the people that are involved in this music either are ignorant or or they just accept it for whatever, just for the sake of accepting Right. And it's one of the reasons why I think we have such a wonderful opportunity now more than ever. Like I said, six years ago, I didn't care if I ever studied with another Mormon because it just didn't ever seem like it was worth doing. Now, after studying this from this class and seeing some of the stuff I've seen in terms of things they're saying and things that people have just recently left and looking at the numbers they're leaving, there is an opportunity. Uh, they're not going to go away if I get that impression, but they are a church, in my opinion, that is in crisis in terms of, of sustaining their doctrine. And their their scholars, they do, they got, uh, they they've been playing catch up recently in the last five or six years. Uh, of, of, of they've begun to do some pretty serious work on apologetics. Uh, but even then, it's just it's pretty pitiful, and they're not really looking at stuff like this. They're actually looking at doctrines like creation from nothing and things like that. Uh, this book that Bob gave to me to, to look at, uh, The New Mormon Challenge, deals with that uh, pretty head on. I, I just don't see how they can sustain those efforts. Uh, they, the, the scholar, and you know, it's just like in any liberal institution. Some of the scholars are, uh, they're fighting, and some of them are surrendering certain things. But how they do those things and still maintain some semblance of faith in the whole thing, I don't know. But you'd have to ask them. So, in 1837, Mark Harris uh, was excommunicated. You'll remember he was the, the financier at the beginning. Uh, also, he was one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon and it, of its truth uh, that he had seen the place, although later he says he saw through the eye of faith. Uh, he was excommunicated because when the Kirtland Bank went down, he was left holding some of the bag, and he didn't, he didn't like that. He became very disillusioned with Joseph Smith in particular. Meanwhile, Smith, one of the things that he did that was pretty intelligent, he, he broadcast uh, people that he felt confident in to go all over to the Indians, to go to England, Scandinavia, wherever they could get people to, to begin say, talking about this book, this Book of Mormon that explains where the American Indians came from and all that. So they began to... Uh, uh, they began to make converts, and, and particularly in England. And about that time, a thousand converts were reported in England, and they later, about three years later, started arriving in America. Uh, about this time, the scouting trip, uh, they ended up going to uh, Missouri because the problems that were happening in Ohio were getting pretty serious with the bank going under. Uh, at that point in time, Joseph Smith, uh, by one account, was tarred and feathered, actually. There's uh, several accounts of that. That he and Sidney Rigdon left by night and went to Missouri. Now there were already some Mormons there because he had already been to Missouri once in about 1830 and had prophesied that that was going to be the place where Christ was going to return, independent Missouri. He also dedicated the, uh, uh, the temple lot there, which has no temple on it to this day, yet Joseph Smith prophesied that it would have one on it before that generation had passed away. And that was a big problem for the Mormons for years. But there's a very stubborn sect of about two or three hundred people left that own that, not the, the community of Christ, not the LDS, and they will not sell it. They will not sell it. They, I guess they say they'll build a temple there, but they're not in a position to do that. Um, in fact, he prophesied that the Christ would not return until that temple was built. I guess, in a very deranged sense, that part's proven true. <laughs> so, they went to Missouri. Uh, it's interesting that as a child, I went to these places far west. I went to what he called Adam of, Adam of Nye, which was where um, Christ, or rather Adam, was supposed to have gone after he left the garden in Missouri. 
strange stuff. At any rate, I went to those places as a kid and, and saw this jail where he was put in. And it, these were reverend sites. I can remember at nine years old being toured around these, these uh, musty old buildings and looking at them thinking, wow, the prophet was here. So it was, you know, it was really cool stuff. But that's where they were at in near uh, Independence, Salt Lake City. Uh, they got into the, the, the governor of Missouri. Basically, they had had a couple of skirmishes. Some Mormons had gotten killed. Uh, one non-Mormon was killed in a skirmish. And they basically, uh, they said, we, we've got to get out of here because the, the governor said you've got to get out of here. So they went across the river to Illinois. They bought some land. And uh, they built this city called Nauvoo, Illinois. Uh, the 1840, the, the uh, converts started showing up. 1841 is the is year uh, thereabouts when Joseph Smith became uh, a Mason. I'm a little early. He did become a Mason a little bit after that. But uh, he began to introduce things into the temple worship. Uh, he read, in 1843, he received the revelation on plural marriage at that point in time. Uh, it is still... Doctrine and Covenants, section 132. I've got a new one up here, and you can read it for yourself. It's still there. Uh, In 1844, Joseph Smith was nominated by the folks there at Mavu by a little convention. Again, it was about 30,000 people at that time. Um, He was nominated for the presidency of the United States. His brother Hiram uh, and he uh, were... You know what? Let Let me back up and tell that just a little bit. He was nominated. Sidney Reagan would be the vice president. Uh, at that point in time, Mark Harris, Oliver Cowley, David Wismer, some of those people that got excommunicated started writing a bad thing about Joseph Smith. They said he overstepped his boundary and kicked him out of church. They, they came up with a uh, press called the Nazi Expositor. Uh, obviously, he wasn't going to stand for that, so he had the town marshal destroy it. And uh, that was really the beginning and the end for him because the folks that were not in Nauvoo at that time, the people in the surrounding area said, hey, that's freedom of the press. You can't do that. So they had him jailed in Carthage, Illinois. He was visited uh, the night they put him in there about uh, June the 26th. A fellow brought him a six-shooter because he didn't feel real safe, even though the governor had told him he would be safe. Excuse me. Um, they were mobbed by about 200 men, came beating on the door. They held him back for a while, but... Uh, then the people that were that were uh, mobbing him there on the second floor of this, this little jail uh, began shooting into the room. And his brother Hyman hit the face and killed immediately. Uh, John Taylor, who was there, uh, was wounded but survived. Uh, Joseph Smith pulled out the gun and started shooting. He killed two before and hit a third one and wounded him before he turned and went to the window and then gave a Masonic cry by some accounts, before he was shot from both sides and, and fell out. And uh, it's interesting that if you go to Salt Lake City today, they have that gun that Joseph Smith used in their museum. But a very telling thing that they do not have in that museum is any archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. How? I mean, hell, we've got a gun that Joseph Smith killed some people with, but we don't have any evidence for the Book of Mormon, archaeological because there is none. You'd think they would have gotten lucky and got a city somewhere, or a valley, or a river, or anything. What about a lot of the Well, because these people, they were, they knew what they were teaching, and people were leaving the Mormon church all along, and it got more extreme, and they were going out living in the community, and they were telling our stories about what was going on, believing me. Uh, this thing about the Nauvoo Exposure, that they want to put up with that. They feared them. Uh, 30,000 people was, and by some accounts, it was the largest city in Illinois at the time. Other accounts were second only to Chicago. Um, obviously, Chicago wasn't a city than it is now, but uh, they were afraid of them. They were buying a lot of land. Uh, there were people coming in from Europe. They were, um, you know, there's ugly stuff about that. They, they had the Danites going out and raiding the community. That's probably a little bit overdone. But they weren't particularly good neighbors at that time. They didn't learn public marketing until later. So they, they didn't particularly care. Um, most of the Mormons left Nauvoo with Brigham Young. He was on August the 6th. He did, uh, uh, let me ask this question. Is Eric going to start at 530? 
Y'all are going to hear Okay. So I'm going to get through this really, really quickly, uh, the rest of the history, because that's really the key, because Joseph Smith is gone. Brigham Young takes up the reins. Uh, Sidney Rigdon and he argued, or they, they were basically some uh, contentions. Sidney Rigdon should have been, the, by all accounts, he was the highest-ranking officer next to Joseph Smith. But uh, Brigham Young was, uh, well, he happened to be out of town, and then so Brigham Young used that to his advantage and was quite persuasive. Uh, and had a following as well. They went to Salt Lake City, tremendous difficulty that they had in getting out there. Uh, some of, 10% of the ones that, that went over between 1846 and 1880 went over with their family on handcarts, and they honored them to this day for the fact that many of them died out there in the, in the cold winters. Very, these people are tough. I mean, you can, you can be committed to a bad idea. If there's no other message, you can be committed to a bad idea in an extreme way. And these people were. Um, Brigham Young at that point in time, this is around the time of the Spanish-American War, uh, he appointed Brigham Young the, uh, the governor of Utah. As I mentioned, in 1852, the RLDS tried to make uh, Joseph Smith III the prophet, but he refused. But in 1860, with persuasion from his mom, he eventually did concede, and he was their prophet for about 57 years. Brigham Young University was founded. Uh, now, they had prophesied, Brigham Young had prophesied, I'm sorry, Wilford, Wilford C. Wood had prophesied that the, that because of the, uh, they wanted to be part of the union, uh, but they were not yet a state, he prophesied at that point in time that they would not ever, if they had to denounce polygamy, that they would never be in the United States. And in 1890, he signed the manifesto that is Doctrine and Covenant section uh, I'm sorry, Doctrine and Covenant 2 is not Section 2, it's called something else. It's the second decla- official declaration, official de- but it is considered scripture, that they would disavow polygamy and they were partly readmitted into the union. So there's another example of a prophecy, and to let's be clear, the, the history's littered for that sort of prophecy is going wrong. Uh, 1947, they reported a membership of about a million. Uh, in 1957, the papyri that I mentioned earlier resurfaced in the New York Metropolitan uh, Museum. They first, the Mormon Church said it's not the same one, but they, when they brought it out and they examined it, they found that all the structural drawings for the curtain temple were on the back. <laughs> and nobody could explain that. <laughs> And uh, 1978, rather, the uh, you know they had they had a, a history of being very uh, prejudiced against black people. Uh, 1978, they finally allowed black men to serve as priesthood. Women still not in the priesthood. Uh, that's there's starting to be a groundswell for that. By the way, as you can tell, came slowly. Uh, they reported uh, five million in 1982, ten million in '97, and uh, as I mentioned earlier. They really seems that they peaked out in the late 90s and that now they're not growing nearly as fast as they were. Uh, real quickly, here's some questions that I, I saw something like this with seven and some one time, so I just made this little list for myself. It's what I, interesting little things that Mormons claim to know by inspiration. Uh, so as I was studying along, I was coming to something, okay, yeah, that's something. They claim to know where God came from, okay? I, it'd be interesting to do a whole study on the psyche of what Orson Pratt and Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and all were thinking. They were trying to answer questions. They were trying to make this a very convenient religion. They hit upon this idea of the Indians, but they didn't stop there. Where did God come? How did Satan come to be? Well, who are the angels? Why did God create man? Very explicit about that. Where did the American Indians go? How did they get here? Are there different levels, you know, one, one thing people rationalize is how can a good God allow good people who just didn't obey the gospel go to this horrible place? So they've had a whole structure to answer that question. Is there life elsewhere in the universe? Well, for the Mormon, the answer is absolutely. So that's it for tonight. I apologize that I didn't refer to actually had intended to cover uh, plurality of God, but uh, we'll cover that tomorrow night. Well, thank you. Thank you. I thought that would take about 15 minutes. <laughs>
No, 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 that wasn't it at all. Are you going to pass out material to the I can't. I was going to ask if you got one. I've got more than this. Mostly, you know, but some more notes on uh, either note-taking PowerPoint or living just a Word document format if you want them. Okay, I've got it on memory. Well, I, let me get it. I'll get that out to you. And I may burn it. Would you like it on CDs? Sure. I'll try to burn CDs. Okay. That'd be great. Sure appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your work too. Thank you.